This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Y'all are great. We're so glad you're here. And we're also here at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago, the birthplace of gospel music. And we have just enjoyed some amazing music so far and amazing worship. And there's something holy about this space as well. Yeah. Um, We need to tell that story because Thomas A. Dorsey, who is a very well-known black musician and composer, he got together a 100-person choir and the first time they performed was at this very church. And so many people don't understand this distinction, but, but, but Ebenezer Church is known as the birthplace of gospel music. There's another church in Chicago, Pilgrim Baptist, that is called the home of gospel music. And there's a very interesting story behind that. You can Google it, but basically Thomas A. Dorsey, shortly after uh, they performed as a gospel choir, went over to Pilgrim, and that's sort of where they made a name uh, for gospel music. But it was right here where he first launched that choir. And so it, it, and then, and then you said this in the introduction. Who has been on this very stage? MLK, Mahalia Jackson, all of the folks who we look up to as leaders in the black church and the civil rights movement have made their way through this church. So it's just this perfect blend of past and present and even future as we look at continuing the journey for black joy and justice. Can we talk about the intentionality of Choosing yeah, this space? It's your show, man. No, I'm just saying, but you can talk about it too. Talk about the intentionality of choosing yeah, okay. who's yeah, on me, this let stage. Me talk, let me talk about the intentionality of choosing this space by saying something very important. Trust black women. Very important. And here's, here's, here's the reason why I say that. Here's the reason why I say that. Is we were having conversations, the venue would be, and there were so many considerations about tech and about light. We were going back and forth doors were closing and Ali Henny and Elodi um, on our team they said no it will probably actually be better if why don't we choose a, a historic black space and yeah we might not have you know lasers and lights and fog mm-hmm. but there's something that you can't put a price tag on there's something intangible that happens when we get together in a space that historically has has preserved our narrative and our tradition and I'm so, I'm so thankful for them. I'm yeah. so, so yeah. thankful for them. Because what they did, we actually had the opportunity to potentially get a free venue. <laughs> that would have been so much more tech and high tech and all this other stuff. But we thought that the space would be... Um, triggering? Would be triggering. Yeah. 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 So so I'll just leave it at that. But we right. thought the space would be triggering. And mm-hmm. they were like, nah, we don't do that. Like, <laughs> we build our own table. Yeah. You know, we build our own table in our own churches. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then the thoughtfulness of who we invited as speakers was very purposeful. Uh, so you've heard half of the keynotes. You've heard half of the breakouts. You already know the caliber and the quality. Uh, so we were looking for that. But we also look. Every person who's been on this stage is black. You don't get that at a lot of 
the conferences that we're familiar with. That was important to us. That was was hugely important to us. And and I can't imagine, and I cannot imagine, it it is God's providence and sovereignty of God, because I cannot imagine having a different type of conference after having the week that we've had, right, Mm. in in our country. And considering all the the various difficulties that we've had and the tension points um, within our community and the frustrations that we have been feeling in our bodies um, about kind of reliving um, the pain of losing one of our own that we didn't know but is really one of us. And then having to navigate that space in in mixed company and mm. having to function high, let me high, highly functional in work and church spaces and home spaces um, while we carry that with us. I, can't, I actually can't imagine what that would have been like um, in another space. So. That's exactly right. So that's part of what we hoped to get, not just out of this conference, but out of the witness and, and anytime we gather, right? When you've had a week like this, and can we name it? Just with, 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 yeah. with both of them, Jean, with the say very, and then his brother's response at, at, at the sentencing, uh, of Brant Jean offering forgiveness, and embrace tears, and that being the topic of public conversation with all the different viewpoints and perspectives. So we kind of knew this could happen. Like it's, it, it was no surprise to us a year ago when we chose this date that it might just happen. It might just come right at the time. When oh, folks needed to process it. Oh, I, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know well, that. No, no, no we knew, we knew we did something. not have a conversation about that. Oh, no. We knew it was very Why likely. Why it seem like I'm like, mm, look, look. No, I did not know. We knew it was very likely that there would be another public racial oh, well, incident. Of course. Well, that's every week. Exactly. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, pick your week. I mean, we- but see, the difference is most of the times we'll have to process something like this in isolation. And and that's when it feels like such a burden, when we feel like we're the only ones being assailed by these contrary opinions and viewpoints, like we have no one or very few allies who, who understand what our perspective and what we're trying to say, who won't twist it. And, and, and so I'm so thankful that we have gatherings like this because you don't have to do it alone. The, Everybody in this room, everybody who's going to be listening, we are more on the same page than, than most of the time we're interacting with other folks. And, and there's a healing aspect to that. Uh, and that's what I wanted. That's what I hoped for. That's what we prayed for would happen at this conference. Well, let's briefly interact this whole idea of um, the forgiveness scene yeah. in the courtroom. I think it's important for us to talk about this. And both Jamar and I have kind of shared our thoughts um, Spewed our thoughts, <laughs> like we just kind of had to come up with some Twitter quick, fingers, yeah, Twitter <laughs> fingers, or uh, Jamar, who, as you can see with the pocket square, is a national writer because all <laughs> national writers have that bedazzled pocket square. You taught me how to fold it. Um, <laughs> and so Jamar wrote uh, an article in the Washington Post. The title of the article is mm-hmm. it's, a t- it's an article in the Washington Post <laughs> white, about white Christians don't, don't cheapen, yeah, don't cheapen the uh. Brant John's forgiveness. Brant John's forgiveness and his hug. Yeah. Um, how many of y'all felt a certain type of way when you hugged him? Honestly. Yeah. Smattering. Yeah. yeah, smattering. I, I think I think it's important for us to like name how we're feeling in that moment 
and name the, the unique tension points and particularities within our community as to why something like that, not the act itself, but the surrounding circumstance and context of the act makes us feel. That's right. Um, and, and I think there is a historic idea and it's kind of um, put into you at a young age within black community, especially in black Christian spaces, that you are all, you're supposed to bend over backwards not to seem like something that, number one, could get you physically harmed, number two, could prevent your progress, and number three, could be misinterpreted by the white gaze. And so there is a push, even, I, I remember uh, when Michael Brown happened, uh, when the Mike Brown shooting happened, uh, I put up one post, and I was not, at that point, I was just not on this wave. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even think I was hosting past the mic at the time or anything. I was I was going in that direction, but I was more like, okay, let me just measure my steps and measure what I say. And I put up one post and the, the flood. And I was like, I just said, I hate that this happened. And then people were like, how are you going to walk back your denunciation of the shooter? Of the, of the I'm like, bro, I didn't even... Who are you? Why are you in my messages? Look, we, we got to understand like that is one of the primary tactics is to try to discredit your Christian confession. But, but And so yeah. to that point, though, yeah. to that point, I remember having this conversation with an older black man and he was like, well, you know, not everybody knows what you mean when you say what you mean. You know, <laughs> not everybody knows what you're saying. So, you know, you may want to just, you know, you can run a bias and you can. I was like, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is because there is a sense in the older generation, though, of Man, if we said something like this, if we acted in that way, there would be immediate punitive tragic consequences yeah. and circumstances because of that. And so for us, I sat back and I was like, well, are you telling me that I'm not a Christian? Are you, are you challenging my faith? Are you? And I think it's just that that trauma that has literally been beaten, whipped into us. Mm-hmm. That if you get out of, out of line, if you get out of step, we're going to get you. There are going to be consequences. And there was a time where, I mean, for me personally, like went through a lot of very, um, very difficult conversations within my city and mm-hmm. very um, polarizing. I'm glad I went through it, though, because now I, I know. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I'm not spawning after anyone's acceptance and, and all those types of things. But I think it's like in, implicit within our within our community as well as a self-preservation mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I think it's partly generational. Right. Like I think of my parents and. For them, it was unprecedented to have access in professional environments. And so just to get a white collar job in middle management, right? Like that was astronomically successful. Um, and in that context, some of the things that my generation is pushing for or willing to say seems just like you don't do that. And I think it's going to be true for the future too. So younger generations coming after us are going to hear me talk and say, well, this is how you tread in society. And they're going to be like, no, (laughs) like, no, we have to push further. And honestly, it's because of that pushing each generation after generation after generation that we make progress at all. Um, So I think we need to have respect, right? Like, so it's all respect um, as as far as where people are coming from and the things that my parents and and their parents had to endure are, are, nothing like I've not been through anything like that. So uh, we have to have that level of respect. 
But at the same time, we have to say, because of you, because of what you went through, I can now take it this step further. So how, but how does that, how does that play itself out in the way in which white Christians interact with a moment like that? Because there was a similar moment that I'll talk about in a little bit with, um, Emmanuel, Mother Emmanuel. And how do, how do, how is it, why is that a thing? I, I honestly think there's something we do not understand. And even even black Christians don't understand. Well, 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 of course, I mean, we're all forgiven. Christ offers forgiveness to us. Like, why would we be mad at that? Why would we be upset at that? And and it's not the act; it's the context of yeah. the act, and it's the context of how the act is used. Yeah. Um, in public discourse and against other black Christians. Right, right, right. So, 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 when an act of forgiveness like that is done in public, it is done literally under the white gaze. That leaves it open to all kinds of misinterpretation and misuse. And I think that's what happened here. So my stance is no one can tell Brant Jean not to forgive. Like that's, that's a matter of his own conscience Absolutely. and the convictions of his faith. That and nobody's, and, and nobody I follow is saying that. Right. Right. But what the narrative is, what, what, so then other people, especially black people come along and say, well, don't use this man's forgiveness to shame black people into being forgiving of legitimate injustices. Um, So don't use a virtue of the Bible as an instrument of oppression. And and then what happened is... uh, when you raise that caution flag, it becomes real easy to say, oh, well, you don't believe in forgiveness. <laughs> You're not believing in culture. This is what I had to pull up after that article. You know, I get a, I get a lot of interesting mail. Really? Yeah. You know, every once in a while. You sure? Yeah, but this one stuck out because it was so uh, explicit in its what he was doing. So this 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 person randomly emails me after reading that article about forgiveness and he said, you could learn something from, this is just the last two sentences. You could learn something from Brant Jean, but I guess you're so caught up in your own hatred that even a beautiful moment like this has no meaning. What a sad life you must live. Go back and listen to the words carefully of Brant, and maybe you too can turn your life over to Christ. <laughs> That's why you were in that pocket square. You're trying to tell him, I'm living my best life. <laughs> we have joy. <laughs> Because the world didn't give it. And it can't take it away. So, but, but what you're talking about, though, but what you're talking about is a weaponizing. Yes. So taking it and using it as a weapon to. That's and right. then there's like the, all these subtweets and everything. I'm like, this is kind of weird because you're taking grace and now using grace as a weapon. Yeah. It's like, well, how, do you, yeah. how do you do that? Um, right. And one of our team members, Adam Keeley, is our creative director, um, who did an amazing job putting all this together um, along with a whole bunch of other team members. He, he mentioned something on Facebook as he was talking to white Christians about this. He said, don't forget that hug was big enough for her, not for you. Oh. That's good. So, so don't, don't slide in the middle of the hug. <laughs> you ever had somebody do like, that? Like, can I just get in? You, you ever had hug? somebody do an unsolicited group hug? I'm like, I was hugging Sister Jenkins and you came in. And- this wasn't for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, yes. And so yes. I think it's important for us to name the weapon, the weaponizing of it. Right, right. Um, and, and, and what happens with, th- this is the risk in these public gestures of forgiveness, is the rush to reconciliation. It is the sense, especially among white Christians, that if a black person forgives, number one, they extrapolate that to the entire black community, or if you say something against that, they say you're being unchristian. And then number two, they say, well, all is forgotten, all is forgiven, we can move on as if nothing happened without facing the consequences of their actions. So you can forgive someone, but still face consequences. And, and, and that forgiveness, right, we, we often forget the words of Brent John's mother right after that, where she's saying there's... Isn't that so interesting yeah. that, that that weaponizing of forgiveness required the erasure of a black woman? It required them to move past her and see, look, this, this is what we, we want. And it's like she said, and her words now, even as a mother, mm-hmm. are buried. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it, that's so fascinating yeah. how it just requires this give and take. It's erasure. Yes, absolutely erasure. Um, and her embodiment as a black woman is part of that erasure. But she was pointing to the systemic issues of police injustice and said, you know, Brant said it himself. He said, I speak for myself. And then she went on to say, uh, whatever had transpired in the courtroom and with the sentencing, there were still deeper issues that needed to be addressed. And that's what we have to understand is that forgiving doesn't mean that we're finished Fighting injustice. But if you weapon, what is the point of weaponizing? What is the point of weaponizing this act? And the point of weaponizing this act is to separate and divide us and to hmm. shift the power that we have together to stand against injustice. I think that's the difficult part is people don't understand that I had to really come to grips with this. People really do not like that we stand against blatant injustice, that we vocalize it. It's true. And it's so, it seems so like, duh, of course they don't like it, but it's like you are disrupting power. You're disrupting the status quo. You're disrupting strongholds. You're disrupting strongholds in a way. Um, we actually had a young, we actually, not a young man. We actually had an, an older black gentleman. I think he's here. Sherman, are you here? Yeah, Mr. Sherman. And, uh, he talked about praying and he talked about how he prayed in his predominantly white church. And, um, when he prayed, there was like a visceral reaction. Hmm. And it's like, what, like, what about his prayer? <laughs> like, it's a, you know, and I just, I just, I just honored the fact that he, he pressed through. But beyond that, it's, it's like, there is something, Willie Jennings calls it like the second skin, hmm. like on top, how whiteness like attaches to people like a second skin. So we pull it off. It's like, it's like violence. Like they feel like it's violence. To them. Um, and so as we, as we think about that, as we consider that, it's, it's like, man, there, there are heavy implications for this. I actually want to tell the story because Kimini and I were at um, the screening of, of the Emmanuel documentary in D.C. I, that was it was it was amazing to be across from the family, but very painful. And I was nervous because I was sitting back and, you know, actually, when you see families like this who make these gestures, of, you kind of view them as superheroes, you know, <laughs> like super Christians. And you're like, man, they are. I mean, they may not be ordained. They may not have, not have titles or anything like that. But they have another level that I can't attain to where I feel is so far away. And so we sat across from them along with like four or five other black influencers. 
and journalists, and we were asking them questions, and it was very tight in the room. And I didn't realize, I thought it was just a subject matter. And I thought the subject matter made it tight. But it was tight because there was disagreement in the room. Hmm. And it was disagreement. We were sitting across from Nadine Collier. And it was disagreement about why we're even doing this. And I thought, I, you know, it just didn't register for me how triggering and traumatizing this is, re-traumatizing this is for a family member to watch someone talk about your family member being killed, you know. And so having to watch that and then answering questions about it and all this. And it was just like very tight. And Nadine was talking and she wasn't, it wasn't some super deep response theologically. She was like, well, I just felt like hatred would overtake me if I didn't, you know, do that. And so I just, I just, I just said it. And then everybody else was kind of like a domino effect, a ripple effect. Like, yeah, we forgive you, we forgive you. Um, and again, trying to black people taking on the burden of healing a community like ourselves, like, with no help, like, <laughs> we'll forgive. You just brutalize us, we'll forgive, we'll forgive. And I remember there was a, there was a gentleman to our right, and he had sunglasses on, because I know he was emotional. And he said, I don't agree with any of this. And we, were, we were like, everybody was like, oh. And then like one of the activists, one of the older, he's like, well, you know, this is just so powerful because, you know, this. And he's like, no, 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 I don't agree with this. Like, they killed, I think it was his sister. They killed my sister. Like he, ki- he killed my sister. Like, he was like, I don't understand. And another man was like, and he even says in the documentary, if, unless you can show me where my sister was shot six times, if you can show me the points where she was shot, and I can feel, then I'll forgive him. He was like, I don't have, he said, that's going to be, God's going to have to catch me. God's going to have to do that. I think... And it just, it just, it just destroyed all my neat little. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, Nadine was like, "Oh, Nadine was angry." She mm-hmm. said, "I saw them put him in that car, in the police car, with no issue and incident after what he did to my mother." And she said, "I'm angry right now." I'm like, man, how much, how much of, how much of the weaponizing and forgiveness like robs black Christians of their agency enough to go through and be human and be vulnerable? Like, we're human beings. We feel, you know, just because we're imagined doesn't mean we're not real. You know, that's what I'm saying, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, forgiveness and anger aren't mutually exclusive. Um, And I also think that there's so little room in society for black anger that bitterness becomes attractive, right? Like, there's so little space for legitimate outrage at injustice, that in some senses, forget it. I'm done with y'all. You know what I'm saying? Um, wow. So that's, and forgiveness is an act of Christian faith, but also an act of self-preservation, right? Right. Not to hold on to that biting, acidic feeling within us. Um, and we've been doing this for a long, long, long time. I was just at the 100-year anniversary of the Elaine Massacre. Have you all heard about this? It is one of the deadliest race riots in American history, and yet very few people know about it. It happened in uh, Elaine, Arkansas, in Phillips County, 30 minutes from where I live. And black sharecroppers were meeting in 1919 at a church, which Pastor Faison said the black church 
has been and still is the political, social, and economic center of the black community. These black sharecroppers were meeting as part of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. They were organizing for fair prices on the cotton they themselves picked. So bumper crop that year, they were going to get paid if they got a fair price. So they had gotten a lawyer. They were organizing. They had armed guards outside because they knew this was dangerous. And sure enough, three white folks showed up. Um, no one knows what happens, obviously, but a shootout ensued. One of the white men was killed. One was injured. Word spread, propaganda spread, that black people were waging an insurrection, an uprising, which is harkens back to Civil War language and all this stuff. And so posses of white men came from a tri-state area, eventually including U.S. troops, and went about for several days the mass slaughter of children, women, and men, farmers in rural Arkansas. Estimates range, most historians uh, land on about 200 people being killed. And the reason I bring that up is they just opened, finally, a, a memorial a century later, and... Black people were not calling for vengeance. We weren't calling for revenge. Or are we going to do the same thing to them as they did to us? But there was, I think it would have been appropriate for to express a sense of outrage. Anger at not only the killings, but the theft of land and money that has kept people in generational poverty for a century. I think it would be appropriate to be angry that black people had to bottle up this trauma because to express it openly would have been to put their own lives at risk. And this has happened through generations. I think it would have been appropriate to express anger that the white community not only distorted the history but hid it. And so you can't even talk about what happened. Uh, so we have to make room for that. And, and, and that's what I need people to understand, that, that, that um, there is such a thing as righteous anger. And black people have endured so much that it is totally understandable to be mad. Well, and that goes back to our faith spaces. Like our, our, spa our faith spaces have to be places where we're... Uh, they have to be emotionally healthy places, but they also have to be um, places where we actually promote healing and we actually promote safe vulnerability without it turning into voyeurism. And it is it's it is very difficult. Like I think sometimes people don't understand um, in in like multi ethnic multicultural spaces how that can turn into like voyeurism, like watching a black person grieve or go through something um, in a, in a in a very like. Um, dehumanizing way. And so I think our, our churches need to have very vulnerable, safe spaces for us to be fully human and fully known and fully loved. And I think the black church does that extremely well with all its faults and flaws. And so I'm glad that Dr. Faison talked about the black church last night because I think there needs to be a revival um, of young black people taking responsibility and stepping into those spaces um, to act as healing agents and advocates and adjusting our posture to, to continue that legacy on to our generation and to the generation that will come after us. Joy and justice. Joy and justice.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.